Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that ONN's office is located in unceded territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We know that uh, Toronto is diverse to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities documented and undocumented. And for all of your listeners, all of the listeners, those of you who identify as settlers, um, there's a really great resource called nativeland.ca. That's N-A-T-I-V-E dash land, L-A-N-D dot C-A, where you can find out whose land that you're on. And um, not only for the purposes of acknowledging, but building relationships and practices of solidarity. So make sure to check that resource out. Welcome to Digging In with ONN. We are your hosts, Kavita and Yami. And this is a podcast that focuses on public policy systems change that impacts Ontario's nonprofit sector. Specifically for the series, we'll be focusing on decent work using an intersectional lens that centers learning around racial justice, practices of equity, as well as truth and reconciliation. For today's episode, we have Mojze Cox joining us to talk about radical accountability. Welcome to the podcast, Mojze. Could you take a moment to introduce yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. Thanks so much for the warm welcome and the invitation to join you. I'm Mojde Cox. I'm the incoming, I can still say that, right? I'm still under seven months into the job. I'm I'm gonna milk this for the next five years just to give everyone a heads up. (laughs) But I am the new incoming uh, executive director for Pillar Nonprofit Organization. And we're a network organization similar to ONN that operates on a smaller scale out of the London and surrounding area. Our vision is to have an engaged and inclusive, vibrant community. And we do this by strengthening individual organizations and enterprises who are invested in positive community impact. So there are no rules where we come from other than the fact that you're setting your intention for positive impact to be a part of it. Ooh, I like that. I like that. No rules. Right? It's been no rules here. You just, we go with the flow, but one, one of the things that we want to ensure that everyone's intention is rooted in that good, positive community impact. That's wonderful. So in the article, you speak about radical accountability and uh, state that in order to shift systemic racism, we need to commit to being radically accountable. So for this episode, can you start us off with what is radical accountability and how did you arrive at this framework? Well, you know, I don't really know if there is a framework out there for radical accountability. Uh, I'll let you know how I came Mm -hmm. to stringing these two words together and what they mean to me. Um, So first and foremost, you know, I I remember uh, when I was a young activist, I was often called radical. And I found that perplexing because I thought, well... I thought I was doing the right thing, um, and I wasn't able to really quite identify what was what we understood as radical, so radical about what I was saying or doing, until uh, a dear friend now, but an old prof of mine, uh, tapped me and said, you know what radical actually means? It means getting to the root of something. And so truly radical means affecting the fundamental nature of something. And so from that point on, I thought, if what I'm doing is radical, well, 
rock on. I'm going to radical be, you know, that's rad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing some of that uh, radical stuff because getting to the root means that you're not uh, coming up with topical solutions for something, a band-aid solution, stopgap measures. We're really getting to the fundamental nature of impacting change in something. And so as my sort of career and personal life progressed over the years, one, one of the ways that I had I think prioritized accountability in my life is through parenting. Mm. And so, you know, as a, an individual who identifies as a woman, I'm a mom, and I, for the longest time, couldn't articulate much of what was going on in my home by nature of being locked in a system where, for one thing, as a racialized woman, it, you already have mm. a million barriers in the workplace. Add uh, talking about your family life, and it'll it'll muddle, muddle muddy things up. Um, I found that my road to understanding accountability started with motherhood and parenting, like many of my important life lessons. And to me, that is accountability is the act of being responsible for something and being able to justify your rationale or the how you are accountable. And and and. It, it actually defies what most people who I've had conversation with over the years around accountability was like this, pointing out, outward. You're always holding someone else or something else or systems accountable. And that always was one that perplexed me because I thought, well, systems aren't inanimate. They don't just operate on their own. It's people right. who drive systems right. who are not work that are not working for us. So to me, radical accountability is really getting to the fundamental root of accountability, and that is self-reflection, and it belongs to the individual, and that ownership, and that being able to be fully responsible and, and, and being able to justify your rationale, thoughts, behaviors, actions, and describing the how in a way that we haven't asked of anyone when we're talking about dismantling injustices at the systemic level. It's important. Why that's important is that when we do this outward pointing for accountability, it feels as though we're, we're removing ourselves from the equation, as though we have nothing to bring to the table when it comes to integrity and accountability around this. I think that dismantling systems, everyone has a part to play. We would, in fact, have far more advancement if we carve out our space and stay true to that intent. So there is an anatomy of radical accountability, and I can share that with you, but I feel like I've been talking for a long time. So I, no, I want to keep talking. No, that's why, that's why we have you here. We want to listen to your wisdom and to help us, you know, really understand to get to the root of your definition of radical accountability. And I think you've explained that in a really accessible way. And I hope that our listeners not just listen, but start to, as you said, take ownership for the parts that we play in the systems that we're trying to dismantle. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited. The reason why I'm excited about talking about radical accountability and the article that um, we were referencing earlier is in the future of good that Mojde wrote um, this past year. And I think what excites me and why we're so excited to have you talk about radical, radical accountability is that um, when we think about racial justice and equity issues and systems change, um, there's often that desire to be like, who's going to be accountable for this work? And often it's like leadership, right? And, and, and in the literature, 
um, which we'll be linking articles to to this podcast, uh, there is a conversation about leadership taking a role, right? Um, and how we understand leadership is often top down. And what I appreciate so much about your framing of radical accountability is that it's everyone's problem. It's everyone's issue. Everyone needs to be in that um, mode of wanting change and that there's possibility there. Um, and I think in nonprofits, often we look at a hierarchical nature of who gets to define leadership and, and accountability around the work. This podcast and ONN does have an emphasis on decent work, um, which is about creating the conditions for workers to thrive in the nonprofit sector. And I love that dialogue um, where it's like the internal reflection, but also the external, um, because on issues of racial justice, it could be around anti-Black racism, but for Black organizations, how are you taking an intersectional lens? For settler or white-led organizations, how are you taking an intersectional lens in terms of doing that inward and outward um, dance, as well as um, in, in, in pushing forward practices of reciprocity around truth and reconciliation? And so... Um, I'm I W a leader within the nonprofit sector. <laughs> um, we W uh, a leader in the nonprofit sector, and so I'm curious about how radical accountability can influence some of the themes around. Um, and you've spoken to this, but decent work uh, such as culture and leadership within organizations. I know a lot of leaders listen to this podcast and are, and and by leaders I do mean on a hierarchical lens, executive directors who feel at a loss and who often um, are, are looking for um, guidance on what it means to be radically accountable to their team, but also to their community. So as a leader within the nonprofit sector, how can uh, folks be radically accountable, specifically leaders, to influence um, culture shifts and change within the organization, as well as if um, they're embarking on uh, for example, an audit, or if they're embarking on systems change within the organization, what are some key considerations that you want to, to offer specifically around decent work? Pillar Nonprofit Network, frankly, can assist you. You're not alone. Regardless of where you are in Canada, through Impact Consulting, we do this type of work. We've helped so many organizations within the sector and beyond. So first and foremost, shameless plug, reach out if you need any help, we'll help you. But I'll give you a couple of nuggets here around what can sector leaders particularly do to address and draw the connection between decent work radical accountability, and dismantling systemic discrimination, particularly around race-based bias and gender-based bias. I think we can't really be looking at this through the intersectional lens. I should back up because that is what your question was. So my, yeah. my apologies there, Yami. How to do this? A couple of nuggets. You know, the first inclination that I find through my experience in, in helping organizations in the past, I've worked in sort of the consulting field prior to my gig here and, and worked with organized labor directly. So decent work was something I've lived and breathed for a decade and mm -hmm. a half. Knowing how to apply this at a systems change level for dismantling systemic discrimination, many organizations first jump to what? Attracting diverse talent. And I can say mm. one thing, stop it right now. That is not where we need to start. Stop that right away. We cannot bring people into environments that are unsafe. So, frankly, we should be Absolutely. thinking backwards. Retention. 
What's the infrastructure that we need to build? What are the mechanisms? What are the policies? What are the procedures? What are the elements that are required for retention of diverse workers and colleagues within the workplace? Think that way first, because then you're going to be building up the environment that will actually support these diverse perspectives that you're going to hopefully recruit. The other way around is really damaging. And I've been in several of these circumstances where organizations really are with very good intention trying to build around their sort of diversity agenda. And they're going on this mass recruit without setting up this infrastructure. And then they're scratching their minds saying, A, I'm not attracting diverse applicants and I'm not able to retain them. Well, begin with retention. So things, think about things like pay equity. Think about decent work in its most foundational sense. What are the terms of conditions for working people within your organization? How can you improve that? Nonprofit sector, unfortunately, is faced with some real distinct challenges. And I feel like nonprofit sector leaders, including board leaders, need to help and bring in to put their hat in their game and trying to change the narrative around operational costs. We used to boast around this is how much, how few dollars go to operational expenses as if it's something to be proud of. We now know in 2021, we cannot boast about investing in the human beings in our organizations so nominally, because that's the output you're going to get. That's the, that's the quality of the impact and the uh, you know, deliverables you're going to get. If you're boasting about spending so little on operational costs, that means you're boasting about spending very little on the human beings that are executing the work. We have to change our mindset. So how do we do that? There's a couple of things. Focus, as I mentioned, retention first. Build the environment that no one can leave as opposed to attracting people first, because that is so damaging. It's hurtful. It perpetuates more systemic discrimination than anything else. Secondly, look at decent work in its most uh, fundamental way. Basic working conditions. The future of work is flexible. The future of work is in micromanaging. Mm. The future of work is shared leadership. Two finger snaps. The future of work, right? The future of work is uh, looking at individuals based on their individual needs. The future of work is being trauma-informed. The future of work means having policies that do not help uh, perpetuate more discrimination, strong uh, harassment, uh, and zero tolerance for racial discrimination. This is the language we need to we need to help. And guess what? We don't need to do it alone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're, again, um, not sure if this is the most popular opinion, but we have systems in place right now in several workplaces. Um, organized labor is always open to hearing from us in the impact sector to say, how can we people better within our organizations? And we can look at language that's in collective agreements to know how to model our policies. And you know what? Leaders in the sector need to be brave and bold. Engaging with, an, with, with organized labor doesn't mean that your workplaces will be organized. And if it does, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're so specifically talking real. about labor unions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's exactly what I'm speaking about. And frankly, they, these are organizations that frankly should be able to help us low cost where we don't have, we don't, we don't have the excuse of saying we don't have the money to seek out the expertise 
to inform us of what we should be doing. The, organ, the sector of organized labor is ready to deploy some help at any given time. I've spent a decade and a half with them, and I know that that's what they're here for. So we can no longer be proud of those things. And you know what? Set quotas until it becomes organic. That mm. might not be a popular opinion, but if you, you know, if 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 there's pushback, um, or if there's, you know, there it's hard to achieve certain goals. We may have to set some quotas and, and work around numbers. We also know that the workplace is one of the leading places where working people experience racial discrimination and other forms of discriminatory violence. We have to frame it this way: discrimination is violence. It mm -hmm. adds and it compounds, and it really is one of those things that um, we need to keep on the radar, as is a, health, a psychologically healthy and safe work environment. So looking at the standard and the way that we can apply um, things based on our budget and our capacity, being able to apply some of the measures that, that frankly should be ready to, to hit start on today. Um, within the workplace. Have common language is another tidbit. Mm -hmm. Start with common language. Name things like microaggressions. So when colleagues walk up to another, you know, and someone touches someone's hair, no one should say, I've been living under the rock of, you know, under, you know, my existence has been under this boulder. And I don't know, right. it's inappropriate to touch someone's hair in the workplace. Like, no more. Time's up. Time's up. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there should be zero tolerance around racial discrimination as though we have zero tolerance around things like theft in the workplace. We should deem these things as 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 uh, as equally egregious, right? Absolutely. Thank you. And yeah. so, so couple, you know, it's not easy. It, the, um, none of these things are easy, but these are a couple of nuggets that I think that everyone should start to think about um, right away. So Mojde, as you, there's so much, so much goodness there that I feel like this podcast session. I know, could go I have on so many more time, things. But unfortunately, ask. we don't have that much more time. I know. Um, but as you said, as you just began to say, is that this work is not easy. And you know, if we think about, as you said, we're all part of a system, and if you're trying to dismantle the system and start with sort of a new idea, which is radical accountability. Now, in the path to advancing that, I would imagine that people are going to face barriers. There are going to be challenges. So as we sort of start to close out, can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges that not just leaders, but anyone who wants to take on radical accountability, and as we all should, the challenges that they might face and some of the solutions or things that you have found useful in your path and how you know, you're moving forward with that concept in your own work and in your own life. Ooh, okay, where do we start? <laughs> so some of the challenges, no, thank you for that question. I think it's, it's a great way to, to round things off. I can say that from my uh, own personal experience, the, heart, the most difficult piece is the action through change behavior. And I feel like that is something that's linked to one of the first things that I would recommend everyone who wants to be a part of this movement of dismantling systemic barriers 
uh, and looking at systems change in a different way must do, which um, is to check their ego. The hardest piece for me has in the elements or the anatomy of radical accountability has been the action through change behavior, because it's always hard to change your practices. And, and I feel like that's, that is one of the challenges that people are not sure um, if what they're doing is the right way forward. And, and there's no right or wrong answer um, for that. Well, I can't quite say that. There is a wrong answer for sure. Um, but there is no right or wrong way of doing self-reflection uh, and setting intention. You have to find your own cadence and your own rhythm in doing that. So I have pointers for leaders who want to, and people in general who want to get involved in this movement of, you know, hopefully that will build around radical accountability, but one that already exists around systems change and wanting to dismantle barriers for others and one another is three C's. Check your privilege and your ego. First and foremost, if that's what you're leading with, take a step, take a moment of pause and, and step back. And that's, these are all embedded in the anatomy of, of, of radical accountability. And so we're, we're checking ourselves. And then what we're looking at is uh, change, uh, again, action through change behavior. So consider what you can change. And if you are in a position of power and authority, the other, the third C is charge, and that is to bring people along with you, delegate, recognize other people's strengths, make place for everyone, um, know where to find that balance, take take some space or make some space, either take a step back or occupy more space depending on what your social location is and your demographic. This work is, is challenging on so many fronts, but I think the hardest part, if you really want to actively engage in radical accountability, in my opinion, the real self, like the me element is the hardest part to, 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 to navigate. And I just want everyone to know that that's so natural and organic. I think one of the greatest places to start is to build on emotional intelligence. Accountability is one of the elements of trust. A lot of this work ahead is rooted in trust building. And if we think about how we build trust with one another and how we are trusting and how we um, want to be more trustworthy around others, uh, what are those things that, that elevate that for us? Um, one thing I've learned is that it's not in grand gestures. If you ask anyone what trust is for them, it's always in, in the small things, small, repetitive, consistent things that you're able to do and appear for others and show up in different ways that is needed and be actively listening. These are ways that we can connect the dots with other folks and bring people along with us. We really have to deploy traditional organizing tactics around this work and we can't do it alone. That's what organizing really truly says. I think for us to recognize that the three C's in combination with the anatomy of radical accountability, all of this is a natural part of this work. The sticking points is always checking your own ego and privilege. And, and for some that's really difficult, for others it's, it's not a practice they've ever engaged in. All of that is normal. If you follow these elements, I think you'd be on the right track and 
I think being willing to fail and learn along the way is a, is a part of leadership in, gen, in general. And I think we're at a moment that we have to improvise in these uncertain times. I think many of us have kind of resigned to failing and learning through mistakes because of what we've endured over the last 18, 20 months. Keeping that up and, and knowing that that's a part of um, the experience as well falling and getting back up and trying again, but being genuine about it. You can't just keep saying sorry without the change behavior. I keep saying to folks, you, you say sorry when you step on someone's toes. You don't say sorry for, for example, what's happening in London. What we're hearing about is, you know, somebody saying the N word in the classroom. You can't say sorry about that. It's 2021 time's up. Where's the accountability? Where's the radical accountability there? Yeah, absolutely. How are we how are we holding ourselves responsible? So that's just an example. You know, you don't say you're sorry for things that are impacting people's lives in that yeah, way. I think that's really important for leaders or leadership in general, but I think everyone to accept this idea and become comfortable with this idea that you learn more likely from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And we need to be okay to fail and that we're going to learn so much from that failure and from that process of getting back up. And I think, yeah, sorry. That's, that's no, really what I, I, Kavita, I think you're onto something. <laughs> and I know that we said this is the last question. So I want to honor that. But I think that piece that you bring up around failure is so important um, because I think sometimes part of systems of white supremacy is trying to get it perfect and trying to get it perfect after the audit's done with an organization, trying to get that hosting that conversation with staff, wanting it to be it to be perfect, wanting to have programs that are perfect and racially diverse, wanting to have boards that are perfect and racially diverse um, and that have indigenous representation and queer representation and trans representation and women and etc. And it's this notion of perfectionism that's stifling our ability to do the work at times um, because we're afraid that we don't know we're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And it's like, I love normalizing that and really appreciate that invitation from you and Kavita um, for that. Um, so any last words, Moshe? I know um, we'd love to keep you on for longer, but any last words for our listeners um, that you wanted to share before we close out? Yes, I think that one of the things, and thank you for that invitation, I think that we are at a moment where it, we're at a point in history where I, I've said time's up several times already. Mm -hmm. We really have to root our understanding of this moment in this way. I just saw really disturbing images of, um, you know, homeless encampments being dismantled by use of force with um, the same, um, you know, overuse of force uh, that, um, that really jolted us a year ago, um, where organizations widely were putting out Black Lives Matter statements. Where are they today? Where are young black Muslim women have their have knees um, dug into their necks? I mean, I'm sorry if there's no content warning before me saying this, but I'm coming out of a weekend where I'm discovering a lot of really horrific um, acts of violence against marginalized young Muslim women um, who are at the front lines of 
of um, a plight of uh, that, that we should all care about in the in, in in the sector in a meaningful way. These are individuals who care for their neighbors, and they've been brutalized over the weekend. So it's sitting on me. It's resting on me. I, the invitation to say a few last words is that really and truly, there is no other time to do this. Time's up. We don't. It is. There's no more room for for for. Although we want to ensure that we embrace mistakes. We must recognize that in the sector, we're not living under a boulder, and we have to hold ourselves first to account to drive this change. And if we don't, nobody else will. We can't be waiting for anyone else. We cannot be pointing our fingers out to anyone else. The time is now, because time is up. People are, this is a matter of life or death for some. And if we don't hold that consequence as close to us as we would, if it were life or death for our neighbor, our true neighbor, our direct neighbor or our friend or our family member that we care about deeply, we're not going to get this work done. We can't trick ourselves into caring about our communities. We really just have to care enough. And that's where the radical accountability piece, I think, is really important here. Understanding our proximity. That's There's no excuse. There's no excuse to not... Having like not taking that first, second, third step just because you're scared that you might yeah. do the wrong thing. And how privileged you have to have started the how process. How privileged is that position to right. not act because you're scared? Right. Frankly, those community organizers who had their necks under the kneel of of very uh, prominent and heavy police officers didn't have the opportunity to say they're too scared to fail. Mm-hmm. So who are we? to then not do what we can do when we have 20-something-year-old racialized Muslim, predominantly many of them in several intersecting uh, sort of social locations that, that marginalize them at the front lines of a fight that, in fact, that we should all be in, caring for those experiencing homelessness. Can't police people out of being empathetic. So we have to think about things in a really different way. We have to be bold enough to say the things that people are sometimes not sure whether they should say or not. And to recognize that it's a privilege to talk about things that other folks are experiencing on Precisely. a daily basis, right? That there is privilege in you not being able to take that step. Meanwhile, it's someone's everyday reality and their lived experience. And I think one last thing, could I just say one Yes. You know, one, <laughs> Absolutely. One, one last thing that I want to say that when, when, when we're trying to find our rhythm in this work, when it's so difficult, I think we have to really root ourselves in the why. I come from a mixed race, multi-faith, immediate family. I'm raising four children who are multi-faith and mixed race. And I wake up every single day with the reality that my black presenting children walk their lives each and every single day with far less privilege than I do. And that, and I can't change that in the moment. And so what drives me, and I'm deeply vulnerable here in expressing this, is that my fuel comes from that. Where, where I root my, my um, motivation comes from the fact that I wake up every single day and go to bed every single day, knowing that I have more privilege than my children. And no matter what I do, I cannot change that. It's a systemic barrier. And so that's my why. And so I guess I asked the audience, what's your why? You know, that would be, I think, your first step. What's your why? Find your why. And I think that that will, that will guide you and motivate you and, and fuel the rest of this journey. 
And on that note, <laughs> you all can't see me, but I'm raising my hands up like it's a sermon right now. Um, thank you so much, Mojde, for joining us um, on the podcast today. And there's just so much wealth. And I know, Kavita, you would agree with me in saying that it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. And um, thank you, folks for tuning in to the podcast. We're your hosts, Kavita and Yemi, and we'll hope, uh, we hope that you'll join us for future episodes as we continue to dig in to issues that matter to the nonprofit sector. Be sure to share, rate, as well as subscribe so that you are first to know when episodes are live. Stay well, and we will see you in 2022.